Well, thanks for listening to a podcast. I'm Allison Morrow. This is the podcast that does all kinds of thought-provoking topics on how we can participate in the recovery of the southern resident killer whales, learning from the experts who are on the front lines of that work. Today, we are lucky to have Dr. Mike Ford. He's the Director of Conservation Biology for Northwest Fisheries Science Center. And Mike, right now, you guys are about to start this big project, sequencing the genomes of the southern resident killer whales. That's a lot of big words. Do you mind breaking that down for us? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. So by sequencing the genomes uh, of the whales, we're basically going to be determining the genetic code of uh, each of the individual whales. So about 100 of the southern resident killer whales and then another 50 whales from, from other populations. And by genetic code, basically, uh, Every, every animal uh, has uh, a genetic code, which is the, the DNA that uh, is the sort of instruction manual that allows that uh, animal to develop into, a, into an adult animal from a, a fertilized egg. Um, and every, every animal, including humans and killer whales, uh, gets half of their genome from their mom and, and half from their dad. And in total, it's about... Uh, in the case of killer whales, about 2.3 uh, billion sort of letters of instruction code on, on how to build a whale. Our plan is to collaborate uh, with, uh, with some people to uh, basically determine all 2.3 billion letters of that code for, for pretty much the whole southern resident killer whale population. So I've heard a little bit about how because there are only 74 of these whales left now, and people hear that number, and it's actually probably a bigger number than we should be talking about because really what we're talking about here for the future of the species is the amount of these animals that can actually reproduce and i've heard quite a bit of concern that because there are so few of those reproductive capable animals uh, that this idea of uh, a lack of variety for this gene pool and uh, inbreeding is really a problem. So how does that come into play with your concerns or what you want to learn as you do this study? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So there's, there's currently 74 whales, but because, you know, quite a few of them are, are say, older, post-reproductive, um, and of course some of them are young, the actual number of, of sort of breeding age whales is, is just a fraction of that. And then because even amongst the breeding age whales, not, not everyone breeds. So, for example, we um, published a study earlier this year that looked at uh, the paternity analysis of the whales. And we found that about half of the whales that have been born since 1990 share just uh, two fathers. So even though there might be, you know, 30 males or so in the population, um, only a couple of them are doing a lot of the breeding. So the, the sort of effective population size, as we, as we call it, of the population is much smaller, only, only about 25 animals. Um, and that is a concern, both because, uh, as you mentioned, that can lead to increased inbreeding. Um, so, for example, if half of your population shares uh, the same father, that means that about half the population you know, is a half sib you know, sort of hard to avoid some amount of inbreeding looking to the future. Um, and so that's a potential concern. And then these small populations also simply are less diverse. They don't kind of hold genetic diversity as well as a large population, and that could limit the ability to adapt to um, a changing environment or to new diseases or 
um, other changing conditions that, that require uh, a diverse population. Curious, how does inbreeding, as we're talking about it in this context, affect the abilities of these whales? Do we know anything about that? Well, we don't know a lot about about this particular population. Um, we have done some previous work that has documented that a certain amount of, of inbreeding is occurring, so we know that it's happening. What we don't know yet is whether it has you know, particularly bad consequences. Um, as a sort of general rule of thumb in other species, it's very common that inbred individuals tend to be less fit, uh, meaning that they, they survive and reproduce less well uh, than individuals who are not inbred. So it, it wouldn't be surprising if it's a problem, but it, at this point we don't have sort of definitive information to show that, that the whales who are more inbred are are surviving or reproducing at lower rates. Does the genetic makeup of the southern resident killer whales play into their fish-eating-only behavior? I mean, that obviously is at the heart of why these whales are not doing well, right? Because salmon are not doing well, and they really love salmon, and they don't seem to want to eat what a lot of other killer whales are eating. How do you learn anything about that from uh, genomics, or can you? I mean, is there a way to sort of understand how this feeding behavior of theirs is related to their genes? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think, I think we probably can learn something about that. And, and in fact, there, there have been some uh, bio studies in killer whales that have looked for uh, genes that you know, might be particularly involved in diet, and, and I, I expect we'll learn more about that. Um, in the case of, of the killer whales here, I think you know, it, it could be a number of different things. There could be actual genetic differences in the whales, say between the fish-eating killer whales and the mammal-eating killer whales that, you know, might be involved in digestion or, you know, other, other aspects of how they process their food that could be important. Um, there could be also other aspects to it. So, for example, um, your microbiome or the bacteria that are, are in your gut are actually also really important for food digestion, um, and it's possible that, the, you know, the fish-eating and the mammal-eating killer whales have different microbiomes, and that could contribute to, uh, you know, their ability to process these different foods as well. You know, we do know from from other studies that, you know, all these killer whale populations are not hugely genetically different. Um, So I guess I don't expect to see, you know, sort of radical genetic differences between, say, the seven resident population and other populations, including even even mammal-eating populations. but one of the advantages of sequencing the entire genome is that even if, you know, there's only a few genetic differences that might be really important uh, by looking at the whole thing, you could pick those out and, and learn more than you can if you're sort of just sampling a small part of the genome. So what's the end game for the study? What are you guys hoping to find out ultimately? Um, well, there's a, a bunch of different things that I think we'll find out. Uh, one is what we just talked about in terms of, of inbreeding. So we do know that there's some inbreeding going on, but we don't know if it's really a problem. Um, one of the reasons why we don't know if it's a problem is in our studies to date, we've only been able to identify, uh, you know, three or four kind of 
pretty highly inbred individuals, and just based on the limitations of the type of data we've been able to collect. This study, by looking at the genomes of every individual, it'll allow us to get a really accurate estimate of, of inbreeding of, of every individual, and then we can correlate that with information on survival and fecundity and, and really find out if this inbreeding is, is making a difference or not. Um, along kind of a similar line, by comparing it to more healthy populations, we can ask, is the southern resident population sort of much more inbred than, say, a growing Alaskan population of also fish-eating killer whales? And that'll kind of help us provide some clues, again, as to, as to why the population is doing poorly. Um, so that's inbreeding is a big one. Um, some of the other things that I expect to learn are whether uh, the whale's immune systems might be uh, compromised by lack of genetic diversity. Um, you know, this is a concern because we have had some whales die, you know, potentially of disease. Um, as we have climate change coming into the future, I think that it's very possible that the whales could be exposed to, um, to new diseases. And so kind of understanding uh, that aspect of, of whether their immune systems are robust to that, I think, could be important and could potentially lead to, you know, conservation actions related to, you know, controlling diseases or trying to treat disease or, or that kind of thing. Um, another thing that we're going to learn from the study, I think, is a good estimate of the whale's historical size. Um, so we know, for example, that there were about 100 whales in the early 1990s up from, say, uh, you know, the, uh, 70 or so whales in the, in the 70s. But what we don't really know is how big the population was prior to European settlement in the mid to late 1800s. And one of the, one of the things that you can analyze from these genomic data is, is sort of a, a trend in past population size. So I think that'll be really interesting to, to look at for these guys. So walk us through exactly how you do this, from taking a sample all the way to your final report. How does that all work? Sure. So we, over the past 15 years, have been uh, collecting biopsy samples from the southern resident population. And so this involves going out and just collecting about a pencil eraser-sized uh, plug of skin and blubber. Um, and so we have those all stored in our freezers uh, at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center. Um, and so we're going to be working with a biotech company uh, called BGI to get the full genome uh, sequences of each one of those, from each of those samples. So that involves extracting the DNA, which we've already done, um, and processing it in a number of different ways. And then the sequencing itself is, is done in sort of little bits that you basically generate billions and billions of uh, of these kind of short reads of about a hundred uh, letters at a time, and then a big computer program puts those all together into a into a full genome and puts it onto a very high large hard drive, uh, and then you can analyze the data from there. How many samples do you have so far? I mean, how many whales, I guess, are represented in what you're looking at? Um, we have about 100 southern resident samples where we think we have high enough quality uh, DNA to do this. We have some additional samples that are, are purely from fecal samples, and those, those won't work for this because it's a mixture of killer whale DNA and a lot of other DNA. 
Um, so we're, we're going to do about 100 southern residents, along with, as I mentioned, about 50 uh, whales from, from some other populations that are considered to be healthier. How long does the process take? Um, I think once all of the samples are, are compiled and, uh, and ready to go, it'll only take a few months to, uh, to collect all of the data. It will probably have results um, sometime by spring. That's pretty fast. It is, yeah. It's, it's actually really remarkable. Um, you know, particularly, I'm, I'm actually I'm a geneticist by training, and I uh, went to graduate school and studied fruit fly genetics in the mid-1990s and uh, the sort of difference between now and then in terms of the amount of data that can be collected uh, is, is just extraordinary. So I'm guessing then that some of the samples you have are from southern resident killer whales that are no longer alive. That's right. Yeah, there's only 74 whales now, and we have 100 samples. So we have uh, quite a few samples from, from whales who have, uh, who have since died. As I mentioned, we've been collecting these samples over a period of 15 years, and this is not the first analysis by any means that we've done on these samples. So we've been collecting uh, some genetic data all along, and kind of as the technology changes, we're, we're changing with it. Um, so I mentioned a paternity study that we published earlier this year. That was also based on these samples, uh, but we were looking at basically 96 letters in that genetic code instead of 2.3 billion. <laughs> so it's a, it's a sort of a, a difference in, in scale uh, there, but we've certainly been using the samples all along. Um, these same samples have also been used to look at uh, contaminant levels in the whales, uh, which is another threat that they're facing. And then we've also done some other chemistry analyses um, on the skin that has been useful in uh, making inferences about diet and, and other aspects of their health. So we get a lot out of these samples, more than just the, than the, than the genome sequences. So do you expect that whatever comes out of this study will play a part in what the governor's task force is doing right now? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the task force is sort of looking for relatively short-term um, things that they can do to help the whales. And so they're uh, focusing on, on prey and vessels and things that, you know, perhaps could be, could be changed right away. And I think that that is really important. Um, I think the way I think of this project is, you know, I think if you think of the Southern Resident Killer Whale population as kind of a patient that we're trying to treat and recover, um, you know, we need to know as much about the patient and what ails the patient in order to do that effectively. Right now, we do know that there are, you know, clearly some problems with um, disturbance, uh, prey, contaminants that, that I think, you know, we do need to treat. I think this study is kind of looking at other potential problems like inbreeding or loss of diversity, um, perhaps. Uh, genetic variants of particular genes that might be important. And, and all those things may also be important. So I guess I, I view this as complementary to those efforts. The one thing I guess I do want to make sure is clear is that, you know, genetics, as a, you know, short of sequencing the entire genome, you know, we already use genetics, and it's been really useful as a conservation tool um, for the species uh, to date. So, for example, um, genetic analyses were important in the original listing, uh, you know, to identify the southern resident killer whales as a as a distinct population that could be listed under the ESA. 
Um, it's been really helpful in these parentage analyses to understand uh, the demography and particularly the male uh, side of the mating system. And then it's also been really important in the diet studies that have um, shown that the whales prefer Chinook salmon, and, and we've actually used genetics to identify you know, particular stocks of Chinook salmon they're eating. Um, so it's been a really useful tool already, and this is just sort of a big, another big step up in, in what we think we'll be able to do. Are there any other species that have been the um, center of these genetic studies that have shown a similar affinity for a very narrow diet, and were there lessons learned about those species? I mean, off the top of my head, um, you know, the thing that comes immediately to mind are a lot of insects that tend to be super specialized on, on particular plants. So, you know, there are butterflies, for example, that... Um, will only be able to feed off of off of certain particular types of plants. Um, and is that related to genetics? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think in the case of the whales, you know, it's it's definitely more of an open question. As a as a species, killer whales eat all kinds of things. You know, they're very generalist. Um, what's kind of unusual about them is that they, you know, subdivide themselves into these smaller populations that specialize on, on particular prey. And they seem to do this all over the world. It's not just the southern of the killer whales, but you know, there are multiple kind of populations, for example, Antarctica, each of which specialize, you know, some of them specialize on penguins, some of them specialize on fish, some of them specialize on marine mammals and so forth. You know, like even within humans, you know, you have some populations that, uh, you know, can digest milk products really mm -hmm. well. and other populations that tend to be more lactose intolerant and so forth, and um, it's very possible that, that that kind of thing could be happening with killer whales as well, these kind of more subtle genetic differences that um, can arise in, in populations where you know, some may have the enzyme for digesting fish and you know, others may, may be more adapted to marine mammals and so forth, even though they're uh, genetically similar in, in most other ways. All right. Well, Mike Ford, Director of Conservation Biology at the Northwest Fisheries Science Center. Mike, thanks for taking the time today. Uh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you.